0: Welcome to Hollywood 2.0 the is of Cats. Recently there was an interesting fair use debate around a big budget R-rated Power Rangers fan film directed by Joseph Kahn that has over 14 million views on YouTube. I want to know more about this topic so I talked to the top experts on fair use. Michael Donaldson and Lisa Califf partners at the law firm Donaldson & Califf and authors of *Clearance & Copyright 4th edition. Everything you need to know for film and television. What are the biggest misconceptions indie filmmakers have about fair use?
1: (laughs) There's so many. Um, You know, I would say the first one that comes to mind when you ask that question is the time limit. You know, so many filmmakers have this idea that there's a certain number of seconds, it's okay. And it's usually always a different number. You know, it's usually not consistent where everyone thinks it's 30 seconds. Everybody has kind of a different number, which is kind of funny. But um, I would say that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that there is a number of seconds that's okay to use, sort of regardless of how you're using it. And that's certainly not the case. And as we like to explain to clients, it's just fair use is, you know, your right to use a limited amount of material for the purpose of comment or criticism. And so if you're using that and it's legitimately for the purpose of comment or criticism, then you can. You might only be able to use two seconds, but a minute may also be okay if you're using a minute of a feature film. So it really depends on the context and how it's being used um, that determines whether or not it's fair use or not.
0: So the duration. And then for commercial use versus for a nonprofit, you know, just purely for education, it seems that's where people make some mistakes that they think that... If they're going to sell it, they can't use it. But if they're going to give it for free, it's somehow some type of shield to protect them from um, rights holders.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, when we were doing some uh, research for a law review article about two years ago, we reviewed every case involving films and fair use. And there's uh, over 70, about 75 of them uh, since uh, January 1, 1978. Uh, only six of those involved uh, non-commercial uses because people don't people don't sue you if you're not if there's no money there to be made so it's um, uh, the um, the commercial non-commercial it's in the code and courts have to talk about it because it's in the code but it really doesn't make any difference in the final analysis
0: yeah it's interesting that there's this misconception that if it's either a short amount of footage or audio, whatever is being used, and it's for free, then people could just get away with it. But if they're selling it and it's long, there's no way. It's, it's strange. What do you think this stems from?
2: Well, partly because it is in the code. Partly because when you make money, that's when people get upset. Uh, that's when a copyright holder will look at uh, a work and say, I could be making that money. That's not right. They're making money on my work, whereas if it's non-commercial and no money is being made, um, the the emotional reaction, the natural upset is way less. They may not like it, but it's like, oh, uh, at least they're not hurting me. I don't like it, but I they're not taking money out of my pocket.
1: Just to elaborate a little bit on that, I think that there's also – This idea, people, I don't know if people totally understand that copyright infringement is the act of copying. It doesn't matter whether you're selling it or using it for commercial gain. It's just that act of copying. And so I think some people think, oh, well, I copied it, but I'm not selling it, so that's okay. And I think it really comes from there. You know, people ask us all the time, well, we're just, we're putting this music on our trailer, but we're not going to sell it. We're just going to put it online on our Kickstarter campaign. And so that's okay, because we're not. Selling it, we're not using it in the movie yet. But it's that fundamental idea that no, the infringement happens when the copying happens, not when you sell it.
0: Yeah, it's a lot more nuanced than I think is initially presented because, you know, here or there there might be a little article, there might be something on a message board. But a lot of people really don't know it. I mean, for instance, you have that Leslie Nielsen was in that uh, one of his movies, and the marketing was him and his head over the body of what looked just like a Demi Moore for a commercial for the right, film right. And it was a, enough of a parody for it to work. But a lot of people wouldn't even realize that even marketing material could be transformative. Oh yeah, yeah, and
2: that isn't the only example by a long shot. There are a lot of commercials have been found to be uh, parodies. There's, uh, I'm thinking of several in my head now. So this commercial, non-commercial distinction, while it's in the code and while it's talked about in many, many cases, when you analyze the cases, you find out it didn't make any difference. In fact, going back to that study that we did for the Law Review article, Uh, uh, On the non-commercial cases, I told you there was uh, six of them. Out of all those cases, only six were non-commercial. Three were found to be fair use. Three were found to be not fair use. And the fact they were non-commercial didn't sway the case at all. On the commercial cases, uh, the, the vast majority of them were found to be fair use and the, the minority were found to be not fair use. Again, the fact they were commercial didn't, didn't swing any of the cases.
0: To um, elaborate on fair use, what, what should people know getting into just on the, the basics? What are like the basics that as you're producing your next documentary or video for web, what are, where should they start? Like, what's the framework they should use moving forward? Well, uh, as, as
2: we explain in the book, <laughs> um, if it's a documentary, it's easy. There's three questions they should ask. And if the answer is yes, it falls into a safe harbor, meaning that it is rock solid. And the three questions are, are you using the material to illustrate a point that you're already making in your documentary? Number two, do you only use what's reasonably appropriate? And number three, is that connection clear between the two? Uh, if, if the connection isn't so clear, it may not be rock solid, but still will be fair use. But uh, if you can answer all three of those questions, and which are different from the statutory issues, but it's a shortcut It works every single time, which is what the Law Review article is about and why I'm down here talking to the Texas State Bar Association.
0: If you're going to create a highlight reel from both of your careers, uh, what fair use cases would you include and why?
1: You know, the first one that comes to mind is a film I worked on many years ago called Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which is about steroid use in American culture, and the reason that film always sticks out to me is because we did this amazing intro. I don't. I don't did you ever see this movie?
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. So,
1: so I don't know if you remember the intro, and it's this really great intro with this fun music, and they have all this WWE footage. Um, and he cut, and the narrator, the subject of the film, he goes through his childhood and how he looked up to these to these um, wrestlers, and how there were these matches that he remembered and how he always wanted to be like these guys and he has this whole commentary that he, that goes throughout the introduction of the film and because he was did that voiceover and because he did that narration he was able to use all of this wonderful footage under fair use because every single clip that was used in that opening montage was commented on and um, he, they just did a really great job we worked really closely with them to get it to a very safe place and we did and it was that wonderful combination of really strong fair use and very entertaining as well and um it was just one of the best examples of an opening montage that we felt really comfortable with that I've probably ever worked on and so that's that would definitely be on a highlight reel Wow what would you have
2: I don't know there's a couple uh one is room two three seven because thirty percent more than thirty percent of that film was clips from the shiny uh, it, it was a deconstruction of the shining the talk about what Kubrick uh, wanted. That was all fair use. And of course, uh, always um, asked about it all the time. L.A. plays itself from the opening, from the opening shot to the closing shot. It's 100% fair use film clips. Uh, The narrator talks about L.A. as as a site for making films and, and how it plays into different films. There's not one frame of that film that is original footage. It's a hundred percent fair use. A lot of people are aware of that. And then of course um, I always like to point out things uh, uh, that, that everybody thought couldn't be distributed like, Escape from Tomorrow, which was a little low budget black and white horror film shot 100% surreptitiously at Disneyland and Disney World. And of course, there was all kinds of copyright material and trademarks and people in the background. My gosh, it was the longest opinion letter I ever wrote, but uh, every single, every single. Uh, newspaper in the country that wrote about the film said, isn't it a shame it won't be seen? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the the uh, Yoko Ono case that, uh, where the judge said we were right, but we had to work with a filmmaker to make it safe. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we do, and that's what we love to do. Making, In fact, it's the first thing on our website. It says, helping artists to tell their stories their way. And we just it's just natural for us. I know it's scary for a lot of lawyers. In fact, a lot of our work comes from other lawyers who just say, man, I don't want to touch this stuff, but I know someone who does.
0: You have projects online that are not as uh, you know, thought out regarding the distribution and the monetization because they're just the passionate fans. You see that Power Rangers... Fan film, they never intended to sell it, and they create a lot of uh, conflict with the rights holders, and somehow they came to some level of understanding. And I was wondering, what's that process like for um, fan films where they haven't gotten any rights or clearances and they just ran out and started making something and gets millions of views?
2: Well, it's interesting, and, and certainly uh, you've read the, uh, the, the write-ups and they talk about the, the, the grayness of it. Of fan films and and the reason it is let's, let's go up to like the 50,000 foot level and and sort of look down on the copyright law and see why this is in fact a gray area the copyright law that we all work under was passed in effective January 1 1978 it was a complete revision of the 1909 law and actually, the 1978 Copyright Act was a really good law for the first half of the 20th century. But, it, you know, 1978, there was no Internet available to everybody. I mean, it had been invented, but it was still, you know, military and not widely used. Um, there certainly were no digital cameras low-cost low digital cameras available to the consumer where they could do this work. So today, the world is very, very different from the world of 1978. And the, the law just didn't anticipate these things at all. I suspect the law that will get next passed will be a good law for the second half of the 20th century and not look forward either. So it depends on where you're coming from, how you look at that old law that was not written for today's world. If you're a a person that wants uh, complete control over your copyright and nobody can do anything with it unless they come to me and either pay me or get my approval, if, if that's your thinking, which is kind of the mindset of a lot of studios, for instance mindset of a lot of photographers and art, you know, there are a lot of people in the world that have that mindset. Then they're going to look at what Lisa was talking about earlier. Ah, it says over here, you can't copy and you just copied. Therefore you violated my copyright. And then, but if you're a person that wants to, um, uh, to, to make fan films, for instance, uh, you look at the constitution and it says, ah, Copyright law exists so, so that people will be encouraged to make new works. And I want to make a new work. So it d- depends on where you look at the copyright law. Uh, you know, where you're coming from is, is where you're going to look. Uh, so it's, it continues to be a gray area. Most fan films, and I like to leave it away on this, most, most fan films turn out to be parodies of the original and are probably permissible under that uh, aspect of the copyright law. You can, you, you're allowed to make a parody and use quite a bit of the uh, original material. Um, in the fan film you're asking about, they, they, used, um, they used quite a bit of it, but it's not the same story. It's, not, it's a real commentary. And you find that over and over again in fan films. Uh, Lisa, what
1: do you... Yeah, I think, you know, just to add on to that, it's so... It, it's great because fan films can be so many things. You know, one time, it was actually a really funny conversation where this writer was pitching sort of a remake of an 80s movie. I can't remember which one it was, but it was it was something like Weird Science or one of those movies. And they were pitching that movie, but it was going to be a parody, in quotes, of like a parody. But really, it was like the identical storyline only put in modern times. So this is a little different than a fan film, you know, this was going to be a feature film, but it was still something that was based on a pre-existing work and it was going to be a new work. But it wasn't transformative at all. And it was really funny because I think the manager at one point used a few expletives, but said, you know, why don't you tell the writer to go write an original story? And so that wasn't going to pass muster. But then if it's really a commentary, like Power Rangers was really a new work. It was very transformative from Power Rangers, and my kids watch Power Rangers. And it's a really weird show. It's actually a terrible show. It's poorly produced. It's really cheap. But it has been so successful. I think there's like 6,000 episodes of Power Rangers, and it's been around for decades. Um, And it's kind of this silly, non-serious show. And the filmmaker who did the Sam film, he really created a totally different work. He didn't take away from the market. People wouldn't watch his film instead of watching the original Power Rangers episode. Um, And there was a lot of commentary there. So... You know my viewpoint on this on this case is that it really was a parody, I think a pretty strong one. And but some fan films aren't. Some fan films are just like I love this film, I'm going to create the same exact one with new characters. So I think that's you know it becomes difficult because a fan film can mean so many different things.
2: Well, in fact, the greatest fan film ever made was just shown at South by Southwest. It was a shot by shot by shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark by some kids that were 11 years old. It took them eight summers to make it, which was very funny when you watch the film because their, their ages keep changing. But, um, um, we worked on the documentary called Raiders, which is a documentary about how they, they did it over these eight summers and how they eventually, um, Came back and, and shot the one scene they didn't have enough money to shoot as teenagers, which was um, the airplane exploding, you know, near the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so that's the greatest fan film ever, and that one was an, an exact remake, no comment at all. And um, Steven Spielberg loved it. Everybody loves it, but but part of that love comes because they're you know having. Had no intention of making money from it. So,
1: right, you know, Michael, we never talked about this because I think we were both on the same page that the clips used in the documentary were certainly fair use, but that original fan film, I, if there was a, a lawsuit over that. I don't, I don't think that was very clear fair use. I think that was wasn't transformative enough.
2: Yeah, it's a very. It would be very interesting because it, it clearly was a derivative work. So, I don't, yeah, but the um, the good part is that they have the support of Spielberg and they may um they're we're going to try and work it out so that it can be shown a couple times with a documentary just as an event and it really makes you want to go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark one more time.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. Make sure to get Lisa and Michael's book Clarence and Copyright 4th edition everything you need to know for film and television and their website is it's donaldsoncallif.com. It's D O N A L D S O N C A L L I F.com. Contact me on Twitter at Peter Katz1 K A T Z 1 if you have any questions or comments. And the songs in this episode are Ghost by Porter Elvinger and Satch by Prob Jazz.